0: Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco's Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to UUSF.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more. risk. Like Sam said, it's a calculation we do in our heads all the time. And in general, we try, those of us who aren't addicted to adrenaline or suicidal, we try to keep risk down to a a low hum, at least when we're confronted with a clear and obvious one, which is one reason as he hinted that this virus is so scary. Like all viruses, it's invisible to the naked eye. It hangs out on doorknobs and coffee pots at work. It lingers on the change the corner store clerk hands us. It dances ominously on the breath of hello and crosses the distance between us at 200 miles an hour when one of us sneezes. Plus, the virus is pretty awful once it breaks through our wall of defenses, or it can be. It exhausts or turns our toes red at the very least, but also can fill our lungs, dangerously inflames the tissues of our children, decimates nursing homes, and we still don't know all of how it works or why. For many people, getting this virus, well, it's an awful bet to lose. Maybe the loss that takes all our previous winnings off the table in one fell swoop and sends us home. And it makes so much of ordinary daily life a pretty dangerous spin of the wheel. We don't like these kinds of risks as humans. No upside if we win, except that we get to continue living in an awful array of downsides if and when we lose. I'm someone who likes to live reducing my risk and who thinks and always has a lot about it. It's my be prepared philosophy drilled into me by, I think, mostly my adoring and sweetly protective father. How does it show up, this philosophy of life? Well, let me just give you one of many examples I could give you. Every time... I am at the beach. I wonder at least once, and often if I'm being honest with you more than once, whether there might be a shark in the waters, and I regularly scan underneath and around my feet to see if anything seems to be circulating there. Well, for this sermon, since we're talking about risk, I decided to look up how much of a risk this really is, this thing that's occupied so much of my time at the otherwise beautiful beaches of my life. It turns out, maybe you already know this, that adjusted only to include those who actually swim in the ocean, your and my chance in the United States of being attacked by a shark is annually one in 11.5 million. And our chance of death from such an attack? Well, we just heard of such a death recently in California, so I imagine for you, like me, it looms large in our imaginations. But it turns out it only happens once every other year in the United States. Globally, there are between seven and eight deaths annually from shark attacks. Seven and eight. Far more dangerous, twice as dangerous, it turns out, is falling icicles. 15 people a year globally die at the hand of an icicle. And even more dangerous than that is the infamous champagne cork. 24 people die every year from a wayward champagne cork, often at weddings, so be careful, it's not just dancing the YMCA that can be difficult and wounding on your soul and body, it's those openings of the bottles. Ants, meanwhile, kill about 50 people a year, which is nothing compared to the coconut which takes 150 lives a year on average, falling generally on unsuspecting people's heads. Elephants, I mean, they're smart and cute and committed to their loved ones, so we have a soft spot for them, but they do take 600 human lives a year, which is nothing compared to the hippo who takes 2,900 humans a year while the tiny, whiny mosquito kills 800,000 people a year with the diseases it spreads. This, by the way, would be a bad example of how the small can be mighty, so please use David and Goliath or some other story when you wanna capture that important moral lesson. Now, if you happen to be sitting at home thinking smugly that you don't drink champagne, and you don't take siestas under coconut trees or swim in the ocean or go near hippos, then my fellow Americans, let me give you this piece of advice. Please do not sleep in a bed because every year 450 Americans die falling out of their beds. Obviously, there are other more serious stats on risk that we might consider when we're thinking about the unthinkable. How one in five of us will die from cancer in our lifetimes. How one in five women will be raped in her lifetime and one in 71 men. I remember a college professor, a religion professor of mine, Lee Yearly, who taught at Stanford and still does, I was delighted to see recently, when he asked us all to write down on a piece of paper what we predicted would happen in our lives in the next 10 years. Then he asked us to share about it, and people talked about what they expected to fall in love or get advanced degrees or see the world or buy a new car. And when we were done, professor yearly, even then with a white beard said, What about death? Will none of you lose a loved one in the next 10 years? You almost certainly will. Will none of you get fired from a job? Will none of you develop an addiction? We somehow expect the good, he was saying, but we conveniently forget what else might come our way. And yet life has this way of throwing us hardship and Everything is a risk, the sage professor was trying to tell all of us young people. Get a job, kid, and you're at risk of losing it, right? That's part of what it means to be in the game. Love someone, and they're going to break your heart, and you might lose them. Buy a car, you risk an accident. Have two drinks, that, that chance just doubled, and have two more, and, well, the risk is exponentially high. Some days lately, it feels to me like, There's this collective waking up we've all done to the realities of risk. And we've all got our calculators on, and they're hot from constant use. I know mine is. We're calculating how long does risk live on a metal car door? And what about on the mail that just got delivered? And do I need to wipe my groceries down with Clorox wipes, the ones I can no longer find at the store? And if someone walks by me, lazily walking their dog, and neither of us is wearing a mask, what's the viral load coming out of them? And how likely is it to get me sick? And what about the runner who just went by? And what about being eight feet from where Asher just sang in the sanctuary, in a place with soaring ceilings and not quite for an hour, in a service once a week. What about all of that? Is it reasonable? Of course. It's reasonable to wonder, to obsess even, figure out how to limit the dangers to ourselves and others. But we, we may not all be vaccinated until May of next year. That's what our denominational president is asking us to hold out as one possibility. And can we live a whole other year in a bubble? People will have to take risks. Some have been since it started. So... In thinking about this, I've been wondering about what it would mean to remember, to steady ourselves, remembering what that professor of mine tried to teach all of his students all these years ago, that that life is inherently risky business, that it always has been. That the Buddhist teaching I heard once, that when someone gives you a bowl imagine it broken that it's it's a metaphor for life right that what's been given to us well it's always been fragile It's always a coconut falling, a wipe of the nose, a distracted street crossing away from being over. And so, bigger than our precautions, what if we sat deeply as religious people with that? Because, by the way, did you know that heavy stress can take 2.3 years off your life, so we have to find a good way to hold all of this. And I know some of you are working on that. Schooled by COVID and other surprise losses of this time, Daniel Jackaway, who's head of our worship associates, he wrote me this week words that strike me as worth sharing and he's agreed to let them be shared about what he's been learning from all of what he's been living with, Daniel wrote. What I've seen in the short run, and I hope I can hold on to, is clarity. Clarity that focuses me on gratitude for what I have. Acceptance that not everything is perfect. And just the right amount of urgency to do what's important to me in life. Cherishing the bounty and the opportunities in front of me while I can before something changes. How do you live when you know in your bones what has always been true? That life is risky business. Because for this one, Our calculators don't help. The sermon that I was sitting with for weeks, the question was supposed to end the way the previous section did. All of us embracing the idea of risk, how to live our lives fully aware, not just of the COVID risks, but the risk of life and the need to realize that this moment is anomalous and not anomalous. But then other news started coming in in the last few weeks and it was clear that a sermon on negotiating risk couldn't end there. There was some other part of the story, some other part we're in right now that was anomalous and not anomalous. (laughs) What COVID was bringing to light, everyone points out what it does is an exaggeration of what's already in the system, in the household, in the marriage. The good gets magnified, our peace of mind, our strong relationships, and so does the shaky and the broken. Which brings me to thoughts about risk in America. First, what caught our attention was news of the disproportionate effect COVID-19 is having on low-income folks in our country. Of course it is. Low-income folks are more likely not to have health insurance or be underinsured. They are disproportionately the ones who are in frontline jobs, the ones that don't come with protective gear when you walk in the door, or didn't in the beginning. Low-income folks are the ones who often don't have options to work from home, and even if they did, home might not be such a safe place because if we are low-income, we tend to live in homes with a higher density of family and friends there with us. We are also disproportionately represented in jails and immigration detention facilities where the issues of overcrowding and rapid spread of the illness also looms large. If we are low income, we are homeless. And if we add into the equation our likelihood of having food insecurity and other stresses and worries of being financially precarious, and we correlate all of that to the effects on our health, we are more prone to Illnesses and our immune systems are already taxed by high levels of cortisol. All of which means, among other things, we are at an increased risk of illness and death, even before COVID showed up on the scene. But if we're talking about risk and who bears it disproportionately, we have to unpack those low-income stats a little bit more. Because if we're low income in America, (coughs) if we're in that high at-risk group, we know that there's only an 8% chance that we are white, even though the population of the US is 60% white. There's a 21% chance, though, that we're black, though black Americans are only 12% of the US overall population. Non-white Hispanics and Asian Pacific Islanders will also be disproportionately represented in this group of low-income Americans, and certainly our Native American brothers and sisters will be, disproportionate to their proportion of the population, and if you compare it to a white American's chances of being poor, well, it's off the charts. A friend of mine said recently she doesn't think wealth should be measured in dollars or shares of stock. She said it should be measured in choice, the ability to have choices. The choice to go to the Hamptons when New York is a hot spot, the choice to take sick days, the freedom to work from home. The ability to buy food that allows you that full belly so you can sleep well and have a better chance of a robust immune system the next day. So it isn't really a surprise, even though the stats aren't fully in to hear, that right now the virus disproportionately affects those who cannot mitigate risk, not nearly as much because they don't have the wealth of choices. And that those folks are disproportionately people of color. What does that mean in COVID days? Well, it means among other things, if we are black in America, we are twice as likely already to have died from the coronavirus than if we are white. And that's just the start. There are of course other risks to being brown or black or Asian or native and indigenous in America. Some of those have also been in the news lately, haven't they? The hunting down of Ahmad Arbery, horrific, and also part of a long legacy of hatred toward black bodies in America, a long history of tolerance for terror and lynching. Then lately there have been all the increased attacks on Asian Americans, the rearing of the ugly head of xenophobia also with its long history of dehumanization and danger from the Chinese Exclusion Act, the encampment of Japanese American citizens in World War II, and all the racism that allowed all of these policies that is right there, ready to be stoked and perpetuated again by the highest levels of political leadership, and which brings with it great risk of bodily harm and ongoing fear, and then, of course, like all these things, the long-term trauma of diminishment and discrimination. No less is the diminishment of our Hispanic and indigenous siblings, one that dates back also far in our history to colonialism and the so-called missions whose mission was genocide and slavery, whose churches are badges of shame, if we're honest about it, And to which we can, of course, add the genocide of Native Americans, which one government official of that time called the last great human hunt, though I think he was optimistic to call it the last. Let's hope so. All of which shows up now, among other things, in our tolerance for hundreds of thousands of Hispanic and indigenous folk from Central and South America to be held without charges or trial in subhuman conditions to fuel our private, private prison system. Whew. If you are non-white in America, You know the feeling of existential risk, of things about your world, about your body, not of your own making that put you at risk, you cannot mitigate. You know and always have what a tiny invisible virus has forced all of the white friends and neighbors of yours finally to confront the reality of living with a constant existential fear that you cannot entirely control or protect yourself from, even if many whites have more wealth of choice to seek out that protection. So maybe this chapter of our collective life as Americans, as awful as it is and will be, maybe it will teach our nation something, something about risk, something about terror, Maybe white Americans who are not low income will come to know in our twisting stomachs, in our late night waking sweats, in our weeping for lost loved ones, the senseless losses, know what an unacceptable reality it is for anyone to live with that kind of fear, at that kind of risk, so unable to do anything about it. Maybe. If so, Maybe then when our nation finds its vaccine for the novel coronavirus 19, we can start working on things that don't have a vaccine or a hope of that kind of quick fix. Maybe. Maybe we can decide that the disproportionate, brutal, soul-numbing, body-breaking risk of some that has always been borne by some will be our next pandemic to fix. And ask all of our university and private sector experts and all our passionate problem solvers who have come to center stage and our eager philanthropic funders and our citizens who are joining in unity and shared effort, put all of us to the business of unraveling this illness and discover the complicated behavioral changes and institutional and social reforms that this work will require of us and start to heal. It would be the kind of work that faithful people are famous for, wouldn't it? The best of the work of faithful people, the work of resurrecting life, from its places of decimation and loss. So, the second piece of the Sermon on Risk, God, grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour and the hours to come. May we learn to navigate risk, to mitigate all of it together. Thanks for listening to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to UUSF.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more.